0: You guys ought to be excited because we're almost done talking about the tongue. What we've been doing is we work our way through James. Keep in mind, just so we can keep an idea of where we're at, James very practical book. And his call to us as believers is to be let out with joy, meaning that we want to be following God. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. How do we, how do we conjure up that joy? Is that just willpower? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. So if we want to have joy, then we have to be in the presence of God. The next thing he tells us is to ask for wisdom if we lack it. Anybody need wisdom? The scripture declares to us in the book of Proverbs that wisdom incarnate is who Jesus Christ is. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2 it says that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. So the same idea. I want to be led out with joy. Where am I I going to find that joy? In the presence of the Lord. I want to have wisdom. Where, Where am I going to find that wisdom? I'm going to find that wisdom in the presence of the Lord. This is a key idea. But here is what James is getting to. He says, listen, you guys can say you got it, but if you got it, if God is in your life, one of the things that is going to be expressed in your life is joy. If God is in your life, one of the things that will be expressed in your life is wisdom. Why? Because these are characteristics of God. And these characteristics of God are communicable, meaning that we reflect them. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created us in the image of God, right? We are created in the image of God. And the idea, the concept of that is that you and I would be imagers. In other words, you and I are imaging forth the characteristics of the one that we say we follow. Right? If I say I'm a Raiders fan and I'm wearing a Bronco jersey, am I a Raiders fan? Are you guys tracking with me or no? So if I say, yeah, oh no, this is what I'm about, and they, but, but what, I'm, what I'm wearing isn't the reality. This is what James is challenging us with. Look, he says, you say you have faith. And faith is a good thing because faith is what saves us. But the reality of your faith is seen in what you're wearing Ephesians says that we're to put on Christ, that Christ is to be a part of who we are and what we are about, that he is the clothing that we put off the old man and we put on the new. And so James is giving us some practical ideas about how to do that. And then in chapter three, he starts moving toward our relationships with one another. Because one of the areas, remember that he said that you're going to see maturity between uh, in your life is when you can control your tongue. Everybody remembers that one, right? If you can control your tongue, well, then you are walking as a mature believer. And then he tells us, he goes on to, to, to challenge us to gain wisdom, to hold on to wisdom. Again, because wisdom is going to give us uh, understanding of what we should say, when we should say it. We have this idea that the, the best attribute is a man who just spews out whatever he thinks at the time. Well, you've, you're, you've got four more years of that. You have to tell me how much you're going to enjoy it. Because most of us, whether you're a fan or not, of our current sitting president, would like them to take away his Twitter account. There's a point in which just saying whatever's on your mind is probably, in wisdom, not such a great idea. In fact, the Bible says this, Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to listen. So the concept of controlling our tongue, and that's really evident in our relationships with one another. So in chapter 4, he really is going to focus in on this. Hopefully we can gain it. You're not going to have any fun today. It says this, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, here's what most of us will say. Here's going to be our problem, guys. We work our way through the scripture today. Here's my question for you. Do you believe what the Bible says? You got the easy part over with. Do you believe what the Bible says about you? Oh, uh, we're gonna struggle on this one. We're gonna struggle. Listen to what the Bible just said, okay? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Where do these things have their origin? Where do they spring forth from? As we look at it, (coughs) we most of the time we'll think, what's what they said? No, it's what they did. They've done me wrong. They said this wrong thing. They were a poor example of this or a poor example of that, whatever. But 99% of the time when we're dealing with conflict with one another, you know whose fault it is? The other person's fault. That's what we say. Oh, it's them. You won't believe what they did. They let me down. They, 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 they. But that's not what the Bible said. The Bible says this, quarrels and fights among you it, are caused by the passions that are war within you. Now, the first thing I want you to look at, let look at a few things. The presence of conflict, that's a given. I, I tell everybody when I do marriage counsel pre-marriage counseling, this, the presence of conflict is not bad. Conflict is how we grow in every aspect of life. That's how we grow in our relationships, that's how we grow in our marriage, that's how your muscles grow, that's how your bodies grow. They all grow in conflict. We provide the conflict and growth occurs, especially if we provide it in a positive way. So the presence of conflict is there. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? See that first you? That first you and the second you, both of those are plural. That means he's talking about us, you, the congregation, the members of the body of Christ. What causes fights among us? What is bringing this thing forth? Is it not the, the passion that are at war within you, all of us? He doesn't give an exception. He doesn't say it's in most of you, but uh, there's a couple of you guys who have elevated yourself to a place where you don't have passions that are creating problems in your life. So when we look at what James is saying, practically what he's telling us, look, where, does this, where do these things come from? This idea of quarrels. thats a, Some of your translations say wars. <clears throat> wars, where do they come from? The idea of war is a campaign. It's a long-lasting quarrel. A grudge. Something we don't get over rapidly. The second word he uses is fights. Fights is the individual battle. One could be, a quarrel could be made up of a series of fights. You guys tracking with me? One's a big, the big view, the other is the individual battles. Let me give you an example of it. First Corinthians chapter 1. Flip over there real quick. It'll be up on the screen if you don't want to. But as you take a look at it, this is an example of exactly what James is talking about. Take a look at it. It says 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be united by the same mind and the same judgment. Now just brief note, what is the mind that we're supposed to be united by? The mind of Christ, right? The mind of Christ is not divided, is it? So we want to be gathered under the mind of Christ. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people... That there is quarreling among you. Remember what I told you about quarreling? Or warring? What is it? It's made up of a series of fights. It means this is a constant conflict, a constant battle. Over and over again, they're fighting over these things. What are they fighting over? Who's the best teacher? You see it? Fighting over who's the best teacher. One says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then Paul asks this question Is Christ divided? Are not all four of those teachers, is not all four of those teachers their goal and their calling in life to do the same thing? Then why would that which is intended to bring growth bring division? Is the problem, and make it easy, is the problem the teachers? Was it Paul? Did Paul teach everybody should be divided? What about Apollo? Is that what he taught? What about Peter? All the good news is we have their writings, we can actually go look at it. What about Christ? No, that's not what they taught. So where is the problem? This is James' point. Where is the problem of division? Where is it rooted? It's in me. It's in this. It's in my heart. And we want to recognize that. We want to see it. Because the problem is our passions, our desires. These are not passions in submission to God. God. These are not passions conformed in or thoughts being brought into captivity in Christ. This is what naturally is inside of me. And what is naturally inside of me is pretty consistently at war with what I ought to really be, isn't it? Here's another one that we can take a look at. Let's see if we can if we can see it in here. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we'll pick up about verse 14. This is Paul, famous uh, uh, chapter by Paul, right? That says, man, I'm, I'm having a hard time doing what I know I ought to do. For we know that the law is spiritual. Paul calls this a law. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Okay. Paul's saying, look, guys, I know that the law is spiritual. There's a spiritual law that ought to take root in my life that changes me from the inside out. But I also know that I am broken. My natural tendencies are not to do what I ought to do. My natural tendencies are going to be at war with that. For I do not understand my own actions. He says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. It's good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Now, take that word sin and just consider the word passion, desire. Romans says this, not to let sin, passion, or desire reign in your heart. It's talking about, obviously, worldly in a worldly sense. We're going to see that in a moment. It's talking about if our desires are brought into submission with God, then we can trust Him, can't we? The Bible says if you love the Lord with all your heart, He gives you the desires of your heart. He puts it in you. He'll place, He'll give you those godly right desires. He'll place those in our life. But naturally, that doesn't just happen. That's why our willpower is never enough to fix anything in our life. I don't care how many books you write about having a positive outlook and having the, the concentrating on your own ability... Because God over and over again in his word is telling us that we need him to give us victory in this area. He says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Do you believe that? Or do we think, well, mostly. Mostly nothing good. There's a couple of good things in there, though, surely. Surely there's a couple of good things, and maybe those couple of good things are what's causing wars and fights among you. He says this, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, that is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I want, it's no longer I, but sin it dwells in me. So I find in me this law, that I want to be right. Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Same phrase that James uses. The passions, it's the passions. Look again at verse 1. He says, Is it not this, your passions at war within you? Same phrase here in Romans, that it is this passion, sin that dwells in my members, sin that dwells in you. This is what he's describing. And then he says, uh, simplifies it a little bit, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who delivers. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh the law of sin. There's a battle inside of us. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Why are we in the body of Christ banging heads? Why is there conflict? Why does that conflict grow from just a simple battle to to an all-out war with several campaigns as a part of it? The reason my heart is rotten to the core. Not your heart. It's always easy to see the brokenness in somebody else, isn't it? But what James is saying, he's speaking to me. The Word of God is a mirror, not a flashlight. The Word of God is saying to me, it's my heart. My heart is wicked. My heart is a mess, it's rotten, it's rotten. So when we look at this, what we need to understand in this first verse, the source of our own problems is our own passions, our own pleasures, our own preconceived expectations. that Nobody even knows about most of the time. And those things lead us to these battles. It leads us to this war, this fight that goes on within us. And then the second thing we see in the next couple of verses is the, the, the satisfaction we fail to obtain. So we're chasing this thing, our passions and pleasures, right? Which are causing this conflict between one another. But we never catch them. It's like a dog chasing his tail. We run around in a circle, but we're not getting anywhere. We're not getting any place. Why is it we don't get any place? Because of our methods and our motivations. Because of the practical things that we're doing that are bringing about this conflict. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's not so good. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Single battles and long campaigns. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What's our our methods? What's the methods that we're using? We lust for what we ought not have. We lust for what we ought not have. We want something that God says you can't have. This is what, this is the very passion that Paul's talking about. He's saying, there's things in my life that I know I shouldn't want. And there's things that I know I should. And the things that I know I shouldn't want, those are the things I do. And I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to gain victory over these things in my life. But the key to victory is recognizing what it is that brings it about. The first thing is, is our method. We lust for what we can't have. We desire. That which we should not have. That word desire is used another place. Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. says this. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust is guilty already. Desire for that which you should not have. It's the same exact word we're looking at in James. You desire and do not have you desire you you want these things you covet these things and its word it is always especially in the way it's presented here in a negative sense not good this is bad this is our method we lust lust is the passion that drives us and what's our motivation my own pleasure what makes me happy why is it that we seek friends so we can make them happy Or so they can make me happy. That's what James is getting to. What is my motivation? Is it selfish? What was Jesus' motivation? When Jesus sought someone out, was it so that they could give him something? What did Jesus lack that we could give him? Well, what did he already not possess? There's nothing in or through us that somehow completes him. It's the other way around. He completes us. And the point is, this is what the Word of God is saying. This is where your wars and fights come from. This is where your battles with one another stem from. You want what you shouldn't have. Your passion drives you to these things. And your motivation is your own pleasure. So that we could spend it on our own pleasure. Spend it on our own passions. It's all about me. Now remember how we started. I said, do you believe what the Word of God says? The problem with most of the church is they say yes. Until we read this section. We're not, I told you we're not going to have no fun today. <laughs> you want to have less fun, you should have been studying it with me. What's the point of The point is saying that I'm selfish. That I'm always thinking about what somebody else can give or provide for me. And my tendency is to live my life out that way. And when there's conflict, then we have conflict with one another, as a result, it's over my desires, my passions that are misplaced and not submitted to God. Look, I'll give you the key to it all. You want the key to it all? You don't get it today. You get it next week. The key to it all is verse 7. The first three words of verse 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. But a lot of times we hear what God's saying and we think, well, it's mostly true. But I don't know if I I don't know if I buy that this is really what's going on in me. I don't know if this is really my motivation, the the pleasure that I get from that which I shouldn't have. And then when I get it, I'm still not satisfied. I'm still not satisfied. You know, one day there were two brothers, Cain and Abel. One sacrifice was accepted. Abel's was accepted, Cain's wasn't. What did Cain want? Cain wanted his brother's the satisfaction that his brother had when his sacrifice was accepted. So, what did he do? He killed him. Did he get it? That's what he wanted. You want, he says here in verse 2, and you do not have, so you murder. And that's a heavy word. And I just want you to realize that there's, there's at least a couple of places I'm going to differ from at least some commentaries. <coughs> this is probably one of them. A lot of them will say, well, well, this is, uh, this is just describing what happens when you run down somebody's character. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we say, well, this is metaphorical. This is just when you talk bad about somebody. Maybe, maybe not. Jesus had something to say about that too, didn't he? So did John. We're going to look at those in a minute. But I just want you to think about the culture in which it was written. The world in which it was given. There in the Middle East. Was it really that uncommon for someone to murder somebody over a difference of opinion? I don't think so. So you're fighting, you're battling, you can't get over these ideas. And so you don't have it, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These conflicts are in the church, not the world. He's talking to you and me. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to us. We're the ones who are supposed to have bowed the knee. We sing songs all the time about... That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, and we're the ones who don't do it. But we need to. We need to submit to what God's word is laying out for us. Jesus said this in Matthew Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus put being angry with your bro- brother and murder on the same page. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you, th- and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we can't, you, you don't get that. We don't have the right. To hate a brother you don't get it that's your passion that's your wicked heart and it needs to die it needs to be put on the cross it needs to be crucified with Christ it needs to be dealt with how do we know this, this is the wrong path to take well what did it say you do not have you do not receive you do not ask and if you do you ask wrongly how do I ask wrongly I want to spend it on myself and our prayers can sound so good right but the Bible says our heart is deceitful Our heart is wicked we don't want to spend these things on our own passions we need to bring our passions under control Don't let sin reign on your heart. Don't let it sit on the throne. The throne must be a place for Jesus Christ. For life is going to be governed the way we want. The idea of spending it on ourselves, the same phrase is used in Luke 15, 14 of the prodigal son. You guys remember the prodigal son? And his father gave him his inheritance, yeah? And what did he do with it? He spent it all on what? His own passions, own desires, just frivolously watched it all be wasted away. And when that is in our heart, man, there's there's nothing going to happen. There's nothing going to move forward. The battle continues. So the members of the church war among themselves because passion is a controlling force in their life, not Christ. Because our passions, our desires, in a negative sense... Our passions, why it's so vital, that the message that, that I think God gave to, uh, to John Piper, or whatever it was, 20 years ago, whenever he wrote the, the, um, the, what's the book, Christian Hedonism, the idea of finding all our pleasure, all our passion in Christ. That he would be our treasure, that he would be our passion, that he would be our desire, that our desires come in into uh, being conquered in Christ, that they're surrendered to him, that we've given them over to him. Man, we we have to get to that place. Because listen, this is true whether vengeance on enemies was a specific object of prayer or the desire for God's wisdom to gain the upper hand in some kind of eternal uh, or internal destructive conflict evil desires because of our evil desires those prayers aren't answered because it's about us not about God it's about us not about his glory it's about us and how 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 our lives are bettered by whatever circumstance and it's not about him and this is where these conflicts this is where these problems are from but even as we look at these problems, as we hopefully can, can begin to see what the Word is calling us to, the Scripture also gives us the path to victory. Right here in these verses, leading into to verse 7. I see four secrets in the next couple of verses to, to getting us to victory. And hopefully you can, you can glean them along with me. We have to understand these if we're going to see victory in our life. And the first one is we have to understand our relationship to God. Our relationship to God. Look at what he says in verse 4. You adulterous people. What's God saying? Is he telling us that we're all just a bunch of adulterers and adulteresses? What's the point of that phrase? The point of that phrase is this. We are un faithful our focus is not on the lord it gets to be about self and what god is asking of us what god is declaring to us is that we are adulterous we stop we lose focus of of lifting his name we lose focus of elevating christ we lose focus of that and it starts to become about us it always creeps in all the time You know, maybe just because I've been involved in worship for a long time, it's it's always been in worship. And it starts all about God. And then somewhere in there it becomes all about me. All about us. All about something we can do. God's opposed to us when that happens we'll see that in a few verses God's opposed to us when that happens and he's got a way of getting us back where we need to be but we have to recognize that that is natural that's in us don't lie to yourself and say it ain't in me oh I don't have I don't have a I don't have a proud bone in my body bunk man pride is our problem Listen, pride is thinking about yourself too much. Not just thinking too much about yourself. We look here at the scripture. We want to understand our relationship to God. We need to recognize what God is saying is that we are unfaithful. What is the reason? Why are we unfaithful? Because we want friendship with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? friendship with the world cosmos is enmity with God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God now here's the problem here's why we struggle with this we don't know what he's saying we think we know what he's saying and we run with it but we don't know what he's saying we don't understand the term we can't put our head into their head and understand the phrase I'm going to try to help you to do that today when we talk about being a friend with the world, it's not saying we went down to help people who didn't have water. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about loving people on earth. He's not talking about trying to reach out and, and care about them or not to, or, or caring about social change. That's not what he's talking about. That's not friendship with the world. He defines friendship with the world in 1 John chapter 2. Friendship with the world is de- is defined here. Verse 15, he says... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Same phrase, cosmos. He's talking about the world. Not eretz like the, the earth itself, but the, the whole system. This talking about a system, a concept. And then he defines it. You see it there in verse 16? For all that is in the world... You've heard this before. The desire of the flesh... The desire of the eyes and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is from the world? The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying, look, don't you know that friendship with the world... Now, when you think of the concept of the world... Put these things that John was talking about. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what he's saying when he's saying, are you making friends with those desires inside of you? Are, are, are you trying to, to say I can have those and Christ too? That I, can, that I can have these three things churning around in my life because the Word of God, at least in two places, says you can't. If you choose those, you're choosing to be an enemy of God. Does everybody understand that's bad? Enemy of God, not a good thing. We don't want to choose to be an enemy of God. So what? I can't make peace with the desires of my flesh. My, this is, guys, this is my problem with... Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it. This is my problem with a lot of issues in the church today. We... We freak out in a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. One of those hot-button topics is homosexuality. But let me tell you what my problem with homosexuality is, uh, just so we can throw it out there. It fits in this category. I don't care if you're born like that. I'm a born sinner too. I'm a born sinner. I'm broken. I'm a mess. Trust me. My sin is probably worse than theirs by far. That's not... An issue for me. That's not the deal. What is the deal? The deal is I can't make peace. I can't make peace with the desire of my flesh. I can't make peace with the desire of my eyes. Well, I, I suffer from being attracted to the same sex. I totally get it. I suffer from being attracted to the opposite sex in the exact same way. And I lived my life like that for years and almost destroyed everybody around me. I don't get to make peace with that desire. I don't get to say that desire is okay. Because that desire destroys and following that desire makes me an enemy of God. And it doesn't matter. I don't mean to pick on that because I I definitely understand it. I, I, uh, Actually, I thought that, that God was going to open up a lot of doors for me to minister to that community. My, my uncle died of AIDS. I spent a year in an AIDS clinic because they thought that, uh, that I was going to die of AIDS. So, so I get it. Trust me. Probably way more than anybody that's in here. I watched at least 100 guys die in the year that I was in a hospital. And these were guys I knew. But look, friendship with the world is enmity with God. The world right now, folks, the the system of the world is at war with God. Because they say all these things are stupid, that's dumb, and why do we make such a big deal about that? And we, we don't make a big deal about lying. I am making a big deal about lying. If you're sitting there saying that you're making peace with lying in your life, that's a problem. If you're making peace with the desires of your flesh, if you're making peace with the desires of your eyes, if you're making peace with the pride of life, you are a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Period. I don't care what they are. That's what the word declares. And what the call of the Word is for us is to repent, not to excuse. It is to repent and say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm what the Bible says I am. I struggle with the things the Bible says I struggle with. I don't want to have friendship with the world. I don't want to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Because if I am, God is resisting and there is hostility between him and me. That hostility between me and God is not for my destruction. Trust me, if it was, I'd be gone. Do we understand that? If God wanted us gone, we'd be gone. Poof, it's over. Agreed? So what is God's resistance against me for? The whole Old Testament is all about this, guys. The entire Old Testament is all about it. What is it for? Repentance. To say, I'm wrong. Fix my head, God. Just like Paul wrote in chapter 7. It's confessing that. It's laying it out before the Lord. It's asking God to, to move and work in my life. It's recognizing that the first secret to overcoming this is my relationship to God. But it's got to be real, legit, not my relationship with God, where I've added God to the world, to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things are to be crucified in my life. The second thing is the response. Oh, we're going to have fun here. The response of our spirit. The response of our spirit. Look here. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If there's a more confusing verse in the Bible, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Nobody else has confused me? Look at that. What spirit is he talking about? Holy Spirit or mine? What what, what, what does he mean? How those words are put together? They're confusing. I'm going to tell you guys a big key to Bible study. Way more important than having a bunch of commentaries. Here's the key. Five different Bible translations. Why? Duh. Jackie, you mean there's not just one right one? No. It's a translation. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. You can't do word for word. If you do word for word, it don't make sense. When you do thought for thought, sometimes the thoughts they were thinking and our thoughts are a little bit different. So you have different committees who have different goals, who have put together different uh, translations. That's not bad. When we come to a verse like this, it sticks out and it starts to tell us there's some transitional or translational issues here. So I'm going to show you five different okay? five different versions we're going to put up on the, on the board. The first one, ESV, we just read. The second one is what's called the LEB. It says this, or do you think in vain the scripture says the spirit which he caused to dwell in us desires jealously? Oh, that's, that's a little better. I can, I can comprehend it a little more. Don't worry. We'll get into the nuts and bolts in a minute, but I just want you to see the differences because it's important. So many of us, we want to trade truth for certainty. What do I mean? We want to say there's only one right Bible translation. And so we're going to pretend like they all say exactly the same thing. Or everyone else that says something different is wrong. No. What they show us is translational issues. What's the point of translational issues? So you and I get a shovel, walk out to the Word and start digging and finding out why. Man, you realize I went to Bible college for four years and there was no such thing as blue letter Bible. You couldn't for free go online and just look up whatever words you wanted? You couldn't just click and click here and click there and poof it is? I got a program that cost almost as much as a car for looking at the Bible. Now you can do it for free. I got ripped off. (laughs) When we come to these things, it's not fear. Here's the problem. People, because they're afraid of that, they, in fear, throw out the truth and when they throw out the truth, then they, then they take on this idea, well, this is, this is just it, I'm just, this is what I'm going to stand on. Don't do that. That's foolishness. You want to understand what the author meant? Don't be afraid of opening up five Bibles in front of you. I use King James, New King James, NASB, ESV, and what else? Sometimes NIV, sometimes NLT. For what purpose? Because when stuff like this comes up, I want to know. Because I look at it and I scratch my head like, I, that's English, but I'm not sure I get it. Let's look at it. NASB. Uh, they win the award for, in uh, my opinion, most confusing. <laughs> or do you think, sorry, not always. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know we have NASB guys here. Ooh, but they're, uh, this, this one's a little confusing. Uh, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. King James, one of these times, King James, I think, got it real close. King James says, Do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Oh, that's real close. That's real close. I think, I think that's right on the money. James 4, or 5, New King James. Now, New King James we're supposed to just take the King James and take out the these and the house, but they mess it up. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But you'll notice that the word Spirit is capitalized. All right, so a lot of times when translators come to a text, they're also interpreting. And when they interpret and translate at the same time, that's where we get some, kinds, some differences of opinion. Let me just tell you what it says, and you guys make your own mind up. Fair? We'll look at it. It says, right here it says, <clears throat> the word or. I want you to see the word or. The word or in verse 5 begins, or do you suppose? You guys see it? Okay, or is a connecting phrase, connecting to being an enemy of God. So it connects this thought with being an enemy of God. You tracking? So this thought connects to that. The word jealousy here, or uh, uh, well, it is the word pathonon pathonon is never one time in all of Scripture used of God, and it's always used in a negative sense. So if we make the Spirit here the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is yearning jealously with, with a negative type of jealousy. That doesn't make sense. If I tie it together with the idea of being an enemy of God and making peace with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, maybe it makes a little more sense to say that it's my spirit, it's my heart, it's what's in me. The word yearns is a strong passion toward envy. And the first phrase of verse 6 begins with the word but, which is a phrase in strong contrast. So, or is making peace with the statement before. Do you suppose it has no purpose that the scripture says? So, this is something that the scripture says. It's not a quotation of a Bible verse, it's, a, it's a looking at the overall scripture. Here's what scripture teaches Does scripture teach that the spirit that is inside of a man has, has a desire jealously for bad things? Yeah. Where? Everywhere. Does the Scripture say that the Holy Spirit yearns jealously for bad things? No, no, that probably don't make as much sense. How do we discover this? We take out a shovel and we dig. We look at what brings it together, what ties it apart. In verse 6, it says, But He gives more grace, in strong contrast to the Spirit in me, which is fighting against what God wants to do in my life, God gives me grace. And I'm pretty thankful for that. So we want to understand what it is that the Word is laying out for us. So here's what Scripture says. I I didn't take a lot of time. I pulled up four of them. And again, we come to that question. Do you believe what the Bible says? Let's look. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, Jackie, that's the guys before the flood. You know what? You're right. That's the guys before the flood. Let's look at verse, or chapter 8, verse 21. These are the guys after the flood. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You know who was standing there? Noah. His three sons and their wives. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jeremiah 16.12 Because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold... Every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. That's what God says about mankind. Not most of you, not some of you, not the ones over on the left side of the room, or only on the right side of the room. Every one of you. Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart is deceitful above all things. Yes or no? Is the spirit of man deceitful above all things? Is the spirit of man always at war against what God wants to do in his life? Well, if that's all true, and we acknowledge that that's all true, then how do we gain the victory over it? How do we find ourselves rising above it? We want to understand in order to have victory, I have to acknowledge that part of the problem that keeps me from victory is my own spirit. It's me, it's not you, it's me. Our sinful spirit is programmed toward jealousy. And this causes all kinds of problems among believers, and it's the reason why we are friends of the world and not friends of God. 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, speaking of God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't miss what He just said. That's the key to having right relationships with our neighbors beside us. If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we're following Him, reflecting Jesus Christ in our life, then we have koinonia, fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ makes us clean. Who did it? Jesus. Verse 9 says If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. What is the problem in our relationships? It's me, it's my heart. It's my own sinful desires. It's my own passions. It's the pride of life. It's the pride. It's the eyes of the flesh uh, or, or the lust of the flesh and the lust of my eyes. It's the stuff I want. I want this. I want it for me. I want this. It's pride. It's all that stuff that causes our conflict. And as long as we walk around saying, I don't have it. It's not in me. No, no, no. That's not me. A, really, I'm not, that doesn't apply to me. Then we're going to stay in a place Where we're in a a spot where God is resisting us. Does everybody want to be there? That's not where I want to be. Then we see the power of God's grace. But he gives more or greater grace. But he gives grace. That unmerited favor of God. Now the law came... In to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded much more. Is God's grace able to overcome our failure? Does God have enough grace? So you're going to run out of grace at some point and I won't get any anymore? No, so God's got enough grace. There's enough grace. The power of God's grace is able to to deliver us, to bring us through. But we have to recognize, guys, look at the the other part of verse 6. The opposition of God. We don't want to be in that place. Therefore, it says, God does what? Opposes the proud. You guys see that? That word opposes means that God aligns himself. It's a military word that says God aligns himself, takes up a stance against us. God resists the proud. God opposes the proud. And as long as we're in the proud, as long as I think too much about myself, myself is too much of the focus, then God is against me. He's taken up a stance against me. The goal is not my destruction, the goal is my repentance, but nonetheless, the relationship is the same. I don't want to be proud. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. Last week we talked about meek. Remember meek? The opposite of meek was vengeance. So that means meekness is not seeking vengeance. It's being gentle, lowly, humble. This is what God calls for us. Humility. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You want grace? I want grace. You want grace? Who does He give grace to? Does He give grace to the proud? Does it say He gives grace to the proud? It says He resists the proud. What's He give to the humble? Grace. He gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 says, Toward the scorners He is scornful, but to the humble He gives favor. That word scorner in the Hebrew, it means boasters against God. Same word as pride. Those who say, those who say, those who say, I can do this myself. I don't need you, God. This problem's not big enough for you, and, and I don't know that you really can affect it anyway. You know, I've been praying about this relationship for years, and nothing ever changes. The Bible says God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. The one who recognizes that what God is telling us in his word is the brokenness And our relationship starts in me. It's mine. And I need to own that brokenness before God. And I need to repent of saying, I don't need you to do this. Because I can't do this on my own. I need to repent of that. I need to come before the Lord in humility. And what does the scripture say? He will do what? He will raise me up. He will lift us up. We want to have that attitude. We don't want to be those with whom God resists. We want to be those who are humble. Last, the last secret is that. The resources of God. Grace is greater than all our sin. So humility is the stance of receiving grace and receiving grace and relationship with others. Humility is the stance of receiving grace from God and a relationship with others. Humble yourself. There's four examples in Scripture we'll look at quickly. What will humility bring? What will humbleness bring to your life? Number one, rest. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Be like me. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, same word as meek, and lowly, same word as humble. I am meek and humble, and you will find what? Rest in your souls. Rest in your souls. We need humility. Ephesians 4, 1-3, through 3. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How do I walk worthy? Listen, he tells us, with all humility and gentleness, same word as meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You want unity? Be humble. Humility brings unity. What about forgiveness? You want forgiveness? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on this compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive, just like you were forgiven. Do you hear that? Humility brings forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Finally, humility brings better relationships. Yeah, Jesus told us about this one. Luke chapter 14, verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him And he who invited you will come and say, give your place to this person and you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. What is Jesus telling us about our relationships with each other? Esteem others as better than yourself. How many times? Uh. Stop imputing ill will to one another. He says, when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he can say, friend, move up higher. Move up higher. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, we look at chapter 4, 1 through 6. It's difficult. It is uh, impactful. Teach it. Hopefully, we can we can grasp what it is that God is laying out for us. Because the very next phrase of chapter seven is the challenge. So you've heard this, verse seven. He says, "Submit yourselves, therefore, to God." This is what God says. We started with that idea. You believe what God says about you? Hey, Jesus Christ is in you, man. You are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But the word's the easy part. I believe in Jesus. Does the joy of Christ reflect in your life? Does the wisdom of Christ reflect in your life? Does the humility of Christ reflect in your life? Does the meekness of Christ reflect in your life? If it doesn't, repent. Don't make excuses. Just repent and be right. The point is not to walk out and go, man, I don't feel very good about myself. Well, good. Don't feel good about yourself. Repent. And let's go. That's what John said. If I confess my sin, what's he do? He forgives me. And I move on. But if I stay in a place where I just wallow in my sin and I give myself excuses and I am not changing me and the issues that are going on in my life, then I am stagnant and I say, I don't understand, and prayer don't work, I don't get any answers to prayer. I don't know why my life's so hard, and I don't know why I'm going up against all these problems, and I don't know why I'm banging my head against all these issues. And then you come to a section of scripture like this, and God says He resists the proud. Is it possible? That you have aligned yourself in friendship with the world. And God is resisting you? If so, the solution is easy. Repent. Confess. Move on because God's grace is greater than all our failures. Paul himself had this problem. Right? Right? The things I ought to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, those are the things I do. Oh, why do I keep doing these dumb things? I thank God for Jesus Christ, who's the one who's the key to the victory through it all. Because his grace is inextinguishable. But my part, my part, repentance and confession. I don't want to find myself being opposed by God. I want peace with God. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we look at this section of Scripture and we recognize a lot of times, well, Lord, your word says all the times when we're having problems with one another, the problem centers within me. And then I need to take that problem before you, God. I need to make my heart right with you, God. I need to consistently live a life of repentance and confession, asking you to sit on the throne of my heart, God, that my desires are not at peace with the world, but that my desires are at peace with you, God. I want what you want me to have. I want to be who you want me to be. I want to express you when I go through my life, when I... stand and talk to somebody. When I, when I find myself in a difficult situation, I want you to shine through. I need that in my life. Well, if I want that in my life, I can just say, well, I just have it. But the words are cheap. Or I can do it. And when I do it, I'm not saying do it as though I, by my own willpower, accomplish these things. That's my sin. When I say do it, I mean I stand in submission to you, God repenting of my failure, confessing my sin, and asking that You would shine forth in greater and greater degrees in my life so that when people see me, they see You. So when people look at me, they they see Your characteristics. No longer fighting for my own way or my own self, but God, for You. That You have taken the throne of my life and that I am elevating You above all others. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts because I know many of us find ourselves in this weird place where we don't understand the opposition in our life. And maybe it's us. Maybe we are our own opposition. We have lined up us apart from God, away from God, in a challenge to God. May we come to a place of repentance and confession So that that can be right, Lord, and we can see you move in our lives in a powerful way. God, we pray you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name.